street names are funny things. We use them all the time, almost without thinking. But someone, at some point, decided that this or that name was appropriate for a new strip of asphalt. I still remember years ago having the sudden realization that the university drive I drove on so often in Mesa must have received that name because the street literally ran along Arizona State University in Tempe. Camelback Road in Phoenix and Tempe is called that because it passes Camelback Mountain. Congress Street in Tucson is named for the Congress Hall Saloon, which had been built in 1868 and where many territorial legislators held informal meetings after the capital was removed to Tucson the previous year. Of course, there are plenty others with what I'm sure are great backstories. For instance, I, like what I assume have to be others, have wondered why exactly there is a bloody basin road that crosses I-17 south of Cortis Lakes. But this episode is not about street names, though I should probably add that to my list of episode topics. This episode is about one particular street name that runs for 40 miles across the center of the Valley of the Sun and is just north of the heart of downtown Phoenix. Many of you might use this street regularly, maybe by taking the exits off both sides of the Loop 101, State Route 51, the Loop 303, and Interstate 17. Yet behind this common street name lies a long and controversial history, that of the Phoenix Indian School. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 156, Peaceably If They Will, Forcibly If They Must. Welcome back, everyone. I'm going to start today with a bit of an apology and an explanation. The apology is twofold. First off, again, I'm sorry for taking the last week off. But I had a great time in Tempe being hosted by the class of listener Luke Y. They had some great questions about both history and the podcasting process. I did make a recording of our conversation, and maybe one day when I need to do some filler content, I'll slot it in for you to hear me ramble about my views on history and this strange thing that I do and that you all tune in every week to hear. The second part of the apology bleeds into the explanation. I was convinced that after our run of episodes on the U.S.-Mexican border, I could finally get away permanently from the 1890s and maybe actually bring us fully into the 20th century. However, last week, I suddenly had a panic-inducing thought. I had not talked about the founding of the Phoenix Indian School in 1891. I'm not sure how I missed it, but when I realized that we hadn't covered it yet, My plans for this week changed in a hurry. With the high-profile news stories in recent years about the deplorable conditions at similar Amerindian boarding schools in Canada, I knew this was something that I needed to do and do right, which was another reason for me taking last week off. That is the explanation, by the way. But the second part of the apology is that this episode probably should have been slotted in 
10 or 20 episodes ago. Better late than never, as they say, but I definitely dropped the ball here. Okay, with that out of the way, let us talk about the Phoenix Indian School. But before we can even touch on that, we have to go back a little further to the concept of off-reservation Indian boarding schools. Going into the 1880s, it was becoming apparent to most in the halls of power that the Indian Wars would soon be over. The Apache Wars, still the longest war in United States history, wouldn't wrap up until 1887, and there was still the bloody incident at Wounded Knee in 1890, but other than that, the U.S. Army had finally managed to ground down tribes to the point that they could be shepherded onto reservations. But the question now became, what to do with the Amerindians? Because, of course, they couldn't just let them live in peace and follow their own cultures, that would just be silly. So, the question of education which was considered by all a necessary prelude to the bigger question of assimilation, had to be addressed. Now, there were two main answers to these questions that were being bandied about out there. One was articulated by Samuel Chapman Armstrong, a former Civil War general who founded what became Hampton University, which was geared toward teaching recently emancipated African Americans to be teachers and in other important job skills. In brief, and doing away with any sort of nuance, Armstrong believed that the Amerindians were miles behind Americans and other races in terms of civilization, and so they should be kept on their reservations and taught how to work the land and do the manual labor necessary to sustain themselves. Eventually, educating the Amerindian in this way would ever so slowly allow them to start integrating into the wider American culture diametrically opposed to Armstrong's philosophy was Richard Henry Pratt, another Civil War veteran who by the 1870s was a second lieutenant with extensive experience fighting in the various wars that the cavalry was constantly waging against the Plains tribes. For a time, Pratt oversaw Amerindian prisoners at Fort Marion, where Geronimo and other Chiricahua Apache would be exiled a decade later, where he started teaching classes on English, art, and craftsmanship. Like Armstrong, he would come to believe that the Amerindians needed to be civilized, but he disagreed strongly about how to get there. In his experience, the Amerindians could be assimilated into American culture now, today, with a little effort. However, to do so, it was necessary for the government to completely break any cultural connections Amerindians had to their tribes. They had to become Americans by speaking English, working for a living, and being educated as any white student would. Pratt has a pretty infamous quote that sums up his thinking, where he says, quote, All the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. End quote. So, to be clear, both of these options are pretty horrible, concentrating on breaking apart native cultures and forcibly assimilating Amerindians into a Euro-American way of life and thinking. We do need to remember, however, that at the time, these were actually considered the most humane viewpoints on how to treat Amerindians. Though it hadn't been articulated yet by Roger Kipling, 
People like Pratt and Armstrong are basically living out the extremely patronizing philosophy of the white man's burden. However, there were still a good amount of people out there who wanted to enact the philosophy of the only good Indian is a dead Indian. So, relatively speaking, Pratt and Armstrong were doing okay, maybe, kind of, sort of? Really, though, with those as their only major options, Amerindians were really stuck between their own Scylla and Cherubidus. Though Armstrong had his supporters and put his ideas into practice, we're going to swing our attention over to Pratt, whose vision of Amerindian education would shape what the Phoenix Indian School would become. In 1879, Pratt would found the prototype for all off-reservation schools, the United States Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The Carlisle School built into old military barracks, was where Pratt tried to put his ideas into practice and has its own very complicated and controversial history. Carlisle has also popped up in our story before in episodes 98, 100, 112, and 115, as first a threat about what to do with hostile Chiricahua Apache, and then as a place where the heads of the San Carlos Reservation were actively sending Apache children. In episode 115, we saw Chiricahua children being shipped off to Carlisle while their parents were sent to Alabama, and once in Pennsylvania, those children would suffer from that great plague of Amerindian boarding schools, tuberculosis. Carlisle was more than just a boarding school, however. Pratt also started something that will have a direct bearing on the Phoenix Indian School, the outing system. As imagined by Pratt, the outing system was a way for his Amerindian students to not only see the white man's world up close, but to fully participate in it. Basically, students from Carlisle were placed with families, provided clothes and books, but where they would work for their board and for some money, because everyone assumed that for the Amerindian to be quote-unquote civilized, they had to become farmers. This system hit some snags at first mainly over language barriers and the students being placed with families too close to the school so they were tempted to sneak back to be with their fellow Amerindians, but overall, the idea seemed to work. Eventually, the program proliferated, with Pratt continuing to revise it and set down some ground rules. First, to make sure his pupils were adequately prepared to participate in the outing system, they had to spend two years at Carlisle first, learning English and other skills designed to let them live alongside whites. Second, host families, who were starting to have students live with them most of the year, were thoroughly vetted. They would also be subjected to surprise inspections just to make sure all the conditions were being met. These families were specifically instructed that they were to treat students as members of the family, not as servants or hired help. Based on his earlier positive experiences sending students to live with Quakers, who had a background of fair dealings with Amerindians, Pratt wanted to make sure that his students were only placed with people invested in their success. Which is why, for example, he never sent students to city jobs or to locations where it was probable they would become menial laborers. And that little tidbit is going to come back around later on. By 1903, there were 948 students participating in the outing system, 
with boys doing such work as farming, harvesting, gardening, and blacksmithing, while girls were helping out with housework and other domestic tasks. The students were getting paid between $1 and $15 per month, which would put into a bank account for them to draw money out once a month to pay for any expenses. Carlisle's outing system was generally praised by Americans, and the host families almost universally reported that the Amerindian students were happy, healthy, and hardworking. So, you know, model Americans. As they say, nothing succeeds like success. So the government soon began looking at how to expand Pratt's ideas and experience at Carlisle to the rest of the country, particularly in the West. Starting in 1882, Congress authorized the Secretary of the Interior to start acquiring old military posts and barracks, then being abandoned because the Amerindian threat was dying down, and turned them into schools. Indian Commissioner Hiram Price was ecstatic about this decision, not only for the cost savings it represented, but because it would allow for a much quicker rollout of this education system. He would predict the future success of these off-reservation schools by saying, quote, The schoolboy will then take the place of the soldier, and the sword will give way to the spelling book. End quote. Which brings us around to Phoenix. As schools designed for the Amerindians began to pop up across the western United States, it became increasingly apparent that something was needed in central Arizona. This was especially true among the Akamel Odom, Tohono Odom, and Maricopa tribes, who had once been singled out and praised for being especially friendly towards Americans, but were now considered just more unenlightened savages. Children from these tribes were sent a number of places, including as far away as Hampton University, but this caused an uproar from their parents who didn't want to see their children sent so far afield. A reservation school was established at Sacaton, but it was always too small for its task, and the Indian agent felt that it was too close to other Amerindians, which allowed students to, quote, drop back into their old, filthy ways, end quote. I mentioned before that 19th century U.S. Indian policy was a racist nightmare, right? The solution to this dilemma, then, was to build a boarding school near Phoenix, which was far enough away that the crushing of native cultures could continue unimpeded, but not far enough away that the parents on the reservation would protest too loudly. So, as the 1880s were coming to a close, the Indian Bureau was given permission to establish a boarding school in central Arizona for the Akamel Odom. Happening in the background now is that a man named Thomas J. Morgan, another Civil War vet who had served under now President Benjamin Harrison, an ordained Baptist minister and educator, was named Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 1889. Morgan also believed in Pratt's vision for educating the Amerindians in order to cut them off from their culture, and he called for the creation of educational systems modeled after the American public school system, but adapted to Amerindians. In his first annual report as commissioner, he would write, quote, The Indians must conform to the white man's ways, peaceably if they will, forcibly if they must, end quote. Serving under Morgan as superintendent of Indian schools was a Methodist minister from Boston named Daniel Dorchester, 
who decided to make a massive circuit of the West to review and advise Indian schools. In 1890, this circuit brought the Reverend Dorchester to Arizona. Dorchester was not impressed by the state of the Amerindians he encountered in the territory, going so far as to say, quote, When we come to mental ability, we find the Indians of Arizona inferior to all others, end quote. Ouch. But in something of a prescient thought, he actually expressed concern about educating the Acomel Odom because white farmers were already taking so much water from the Gila River. If the Odom were then taught advanced farming techniques, their demands for irrigated water would increase, but there wouldn't be enough to go around. For Dorchester, if the Acomel Odom couldn't be guaranteed water rights, then, quote, better leave the Pimas in blankets and long hair to subsist on berries than to educate them and then take away from them their last drop of water, end quote. If you drop the standard 19th century racism and patronizing from that sentiment, Dorchester here is really kind of predicting the future, something that we'll get into in coming episodes as we explore exactly how American policy royally hosed the Odom trying to farm along the Gila. However, let's get back on task. Dorchester was in Arizona for a specific reason. There was a school to establish. In March 1890, Dorchester came to the Valley of the Sun, but he wasn't looking toward Phoenix. Instead, he set his sights to the east, to Fort McDowell along the Verde River. The fort had basically outlived its usefulness to the army, and the outgoing commander, who had once served as an Indian agent himself, even suggested that it could find a second life as an Indian boarding school. He touted that the buildings might need a few small repairs, but otherwise the fort was ready to house some 300 students. The area was a garden spot, he pitched, much healthier than some reservation land in most Indian boarding schools, and the only strike against it was that it got hot in the summer, but that's something the local Amerindian youth were used to. This intelligence was sent to Dorchester, who went to check it out. And the good reverend absolutely adored the spot and couldn't praise it enough in his reports back to the home office. It had everything, plenty of room for farming and gardens, irrigation already in place, and a location close to, but not actually on any reservation. Just for fun, I will read how Dorchester ended his recommendation for Fort McDowell. Quote, The Indians of Arizona, long under the tutelage of a Mexican civilization, are now exposed to the no less debauching influence of Mormonism. Now this is the fitting time for the government to render them its best service. This golden opportunity should not be allowed to pass unimproved. End quote. By the way, he also said that the territorial leaders, whom he dismisses as quote-unquote small politicians, should not have any say in who was appointed school superintendent, mainly because he considered people in Arizona to have a very low opinion of both public education and morality. For those keeping score at home, yes, Dorchester has now managed to disparage Amerindians, Mexicans, Mormons, and even the leaders of the territory he was in. However, Morgan was impressed enough with Dorchester's report that he started kicking things into gear, appointing an educator named Wellington Rich to be superintendent of the newly proposed school. 
Rich was a native of Omaha, Nebraska, but he'd also been an administrator at the Yankton Agency Boarding School in South Dakota. He was also a true believer in Amerindian education and was positively giddy at the chance to run his own school and affect the kind of change that he and others believed was necessary. By August 1890, so just five months after Dorchester had made his report, Rich had met with Morgan in Washington, D.C., assembled a staff, and had taken a train out to Arizona. However, when Rich toured the now nearly abandoned Fort McDowell, he had the complete opposite reaction as Dorchester. The army had taken most supplies with it. Whatever was left was either in such poor shape that Rich didn't want it, or the army didn't have permission to sell it to him. And though Dorchester had made it seem like the buildings were all in fine shape and just ready for a fresh coat of paint, Rich found that most of the main buildings were dilapidated. He estimated that repairs would cost $15,000, or roughly half a million dollars today. And, oh, by the way, repair costs all the way out at the fort were double what they would be in Phoenix. On top of that, Rich's report to Morgan was that the fort was too hot, too far away from the nearest railroad station, had too poor of land, and was ill-suited for education purposes. In short, the new superintendent thought Dorchester's report was full of it. With Fort McDowell looking less and less like a good location, something that Morgan himself would confirm during a visit in October 1890, leading citizens in Phoenix started thinking that an Indian school would be a nice feather in their cap. Phoenix and its boosters were riding high, having gained the Territorial Asylum in 1886, a rail spur coming up from Maricopa in 1887, and, as we know, the territorial capital in 1889. When they heard about Rich and his mission, real estate speculators instantly realized that this new school with its deep government pockets could immensely boost the value of their own holdings north of the city proper. Then there was the added promise that the school would set up an outing system like at Carlisle, meaning that the city might soon have a steady supply of cheap labor. So these boosters got together to see what they could arrange. Of special mention are William Christie and William J. Murphy, who had helped arrange the acquisition of the territorial capital the previous year and were the principal officers of the Arizona Improvement Company, which owned a lot of the land and all the canals north of Phoenix proper. Eventually, these civic-minded gents decided that the perfect spot for the school was a plot of triangular federal land that is bounded today by Encanto Boulevard, 27th Avenue, and Grand Avenue. Never mind that there were already 13 families living on this property. They may have been squatters, but some of them had been there for well over a decade, and when they learned of this scheme to kick them off the land in question, they raised quite the ruckus with the Indian Bureau and eventually up to President Harrison himself. In early October 1890, Commissioner Morgan, who really took a personal interest in the Phoenix Indian School, decided to visit the community to get a sense for the situation on the ground for himself. Almost immediately, he was wined, dined, and petitioned by a citizens' committee that included territorial governor Nathan Oakes Murphy to establish the school in Phoenix. Morgan indicated that the Indian Bureau would be receptive to putting a school in Phoenix 
if the town's citizens were to donate a suitable plot of land. So Governor Murphy took him on a carriage ride around the community, and wouldn't you know it, the tour just so happened to end at this one spot of triangular land that would work very well. And don't mind those people, they are trespassers, and we're in the process of getting rid of them. After this tour, Morgan then went to Fort McDowell, where, as I said, he fully agreed with Rich's assessment that it was a terrible spot for what they wanted. On October 12th, Morgan appeared before a large crowd gathered at Patton's Opera House in Phoenix to discuss what the school would look like. Governor Murphy introduced the commissioner, saying that while most Arizonans still preferred simply removing all the Amerindians from the territory, he was definitely behind the idea of educating and elevating them. Morgan then took the stage and gave a long lecture with the basic theme of it's cheaper to educate the Indians than to kill them. Money was on everyone's mind because the next night another meeting was held and the economics was brought up. With dollar signs in everyone's eyes, speakers did some back-of-the-envelope math and said that a school housing some 400 Amerindian students could bring in $100,000 annually into Phoenix. Governor Murphy enthusiastically said that the school was worth 10 universities and territorial capitals. So the city boosters were more than willing to push forward with proposing the 80-acre site Morgan had asked for. I mean, they literally already had one and were willing to clear away anyone who stood in their way. Subsequent meetings also found the boosters trying to come up with the $4,000 in matching funds to establish the school. However, this is where opposition arose. As I mentioned, the families who were living on that nice little site that the leading men in Phoenix were all ready to hand over to the Indian Bureau were not going to take that lying down. They complained all the way up to President Harrison, saying that they were actually being forced out of their homes by land speculators who owned a suspicious amount of nearby real estate. The proposed school had nothing to do with making things better for the Indians, they said, but for enriching the fat cats in Phoenix. Added to their voices was Dorchester, who was incensed when he found out that both Rich and Morgan had decided to abandon Fort McDowell. He sent a letter up the chain of command at the Indian Bureau, refuting point by point every bad thing Rich had said about the fort. And, much like those hoping to not get evicted from the proposed site, he too blamed land speculation for the proposed location change. But Dorchester was accusing these real estate boogeymen of trying to get Fort McDowell all to themselves. Finally, we even get an appearance from none other than Charles Poston, the father of Arizona himself and one-time territorial superintendent of Indian Affairs. Still a good 12 years away from his tragic death and 9 years away from being voted his lifetime pension, Poston had written an angry letter as just a concerned citizen of the territory. Like every other detractor, Poston said that the school was nothing more than a scheme by speculators to increase the value of their land holdings. However, he also threw in that, in his opinion, the school would, quote, increase the number of Indian drunkards and prostitutes now infesting the town by day and night, end quote. Sorry, I couldn't help but throw in one more example that the 1800s was a horrible time to not be a European or American. 
On this controversy eventually convinced the Secretary of the Interior to reject the plot of land that was being pushed by Phoenicians. Though he did give his blessing for the school to proceed and for Rich to rent space in the West End Hotel, a two-story brick building at the corner of 7th Street in Washington. The go-ahead was probably because of a meeting in Phoenix in December 1890, where residents affirmed their enthusiasm for the school. Though more than one source had noted that Rich was the only one talking about the benefits of educating the Amerindians. Everyone else was thinking about having cheap labor. At the very end of December 1890, Rich received the official news that the government was funding the establishment of an Indian school in Phoenix and that he should start getting ready for class to open in the coming year. However, his plan to start in the spring was much hampered by something we've already talked about, the Great Flood of 1891. And if you need a reminder on that, I will direct you back to episode 134. Long story short, because his supplies could not be shipped across the flooded river, Rich had to delay the start of school to the fall. In the meantime, this gave him the chance to keep up the search for a permanent site. Commissioner Morgan had not given up the ghost entirely on the original proposed location, and asked Rich to meet with the settlers there and see if they could be bought out. However, this was a no-go as they demanded something like $14,000, well above the 6000 Rich and Morgan were willing to pay for the school land. So Rich would search out other sites, including one to the southwest of the city, and another that was three miles north. And it was here, in April 1891, on what was a ranch owned by Frank C. Hatch, that Rich found what he was looking for. It was great farmland, and the asking price for these 160 acres was $9,000. That meant the government would chip in $6,000, so Phoenix Boosters only had to put in $3,000, less than they had originally thought. The ranch land was located more than three miles outside of town off of what we know today is Central Avenue and, you guessed it, Indian School Road. But we all know that once you have land, you actually have to put up buildings. So an architect was engaged in May 1891, but when school actually started on September 3rd, the 31 Akamel Odom and 10 Maricopa boys met at the West End Hotel. It wouldn't be until April 1892 that the school grounds were ready, at which point Superintendent Rich had already rounded up 26 more students, including the first 17 girls to be enrolled. With the politicking now done and the buildings erected, join me next week as we dive into what exactly made the Phoenix Indian School so controversial. Much of it you can already guess, but we'll also discuss how Pratt's outing system, the very thing that made other places want to emulate Carlisle, was twisted and bent from its original intention, turning the Phoenix Indian School into nothing more than a manual labor employment agency. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.